Hey, good morning, Lighthouse. Come on in for those of you who are coming. And as you might notice, we don't have anything on our screens again this week. This is not because we can't afford to put things on our screen. This is because we had what we thought was a video card issue, and then Mark and our IT department fixed the, 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 the card, and it wasn't the problem. So we're still trying to diagnose that. This week, we are going to be worshiping without lyrics on the screen, but I know you guys will be able to follow along. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we will dive in. Father God, I am so grateful that we get to gather together as a family, both in this box as well as in our own homes. I pray that you would glorify yourself through us, that the words that we sing through the things that we talk about and our responses we leave here today would be honoring to you. We entrust all of this into your hands, Holy Spirit, in your holy name. Amen. If you don't know the words, you know him. You know Jesus. Focus on him, the beautiful one. So 
think about it this morning.
you are a good, good father. There are times when many let us down here and you are such a good father, you never do. You are the same yesterday, today, and always. For that, we are so grateful, God. We ask this day, Lord, that you take our hurts, our failures, our longings, that you hold them close to your heart as a father does. And, and Father, we ask now that you would just reach down, let us know, and let us feel and know the Holy Spirit. We open our hearts to you, O oh God, this day. May we hear your words from the pastor. May we hear the words from you that want to touch us and help us and heal us and give us strength. For the week that's gone by, Father, we just ask that you take all the hurts and the failings and things that we've done, and we, we celebrate and give you glory and honor for all the great things that you have done. Father, and as always, for those listening, watching in the stream, for those that are in this building, if there is anyone who doesn't know you as a good, good father, who doesn't know your son as Lord and Savior, may they not let the sun go down this day without finding him as the personal Lord and the Savior of our lives. May your blessings be upon all of us this day, we ask in Jesus' holy name. 
Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. You guys can grab a seat if you're not already there. So, Kathy and I officially today have been married, which is, yeah, which is a drop in the bucket compared to some of you. I know we got like 53 years back there. How, how many years, Jack? 49 right there. Next year's a big one. So I know it's a short amount of time, but I was reminded this morning that we've been married for 17 years because as some of you who were here when we started know, I got up and said, hey, just so you know, all of our, 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 our video card or something's wrong with the system, so we're trying to diagnose it, but we won't have anything on the screen. And then I walk down and I'm standing next to my wife as we start worshiping. And as soon as the song starts and there's no lyrics on the screen, she leans over and goes, so are there going to be lyrics? And I said, no, I just said, did, weren't you listening? And she said, no, I wasn't. So to, to my wife and to all of you, I hope that what we have a conversation, I hope that you entertain yourself well during this time, because I'm going to talk for a little bit. Um, <laughs> Mowage, right? I know. It's a, it's a wife thing. Then what's Byron's excuse? He just turns off his hearing aid. Okay. I know. He didn't hear me say that. <laughs> he wasn't listening at all. So a couple of things I do want to let you know about. One in particular. It is summer. We got a kickoff to summer for some of the young kids last night because they got to do a kids' night out across the street. Super fun. It looked like it was a wonderful turnout. I didn't get to go because I aged out of that one. But we are wanting to do several things over the course of the summer, just opportunities to get together. And one of the things that we're going to be doing, we're calling just beach bonfire times with our community. It's not going to be just for our young kids. It's not going to be just for our families. It's not going to be for our high school students or our young adults. It's for our church community. We're going to meet at B Street on the third Friday of each month. And, and for those of you who have your bulletins, you know the dates. For those of you at home, the third Friday of each month is going to be June 18th, July 16th, and August 20th. Again, those are on the app. Those are in your bulletins. We're going to keep letting you know about it. It's not this coming Friday, but the Friday after from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. at B Street in Newport Beach. We're going to get together. There's a big field there to play. I don't know, ultimate frisbee or something out on the field. We're going we're gonna to have food there for you. You don't need to bring anything. We'll take care of it. We're going to do a bonfire. Pastor Jeff will be out there fishing on the shore break. And for those of you who want to get caught by him, you can be out in the water with me messing up his lines as we're body surfing into the sand. All right, so that's coming up. I hope that you guys will join us. It's also a really good opportunity to invite people who don't regularly attend the church, but go, hey, come and, come and hang out with us. Get to know some of these weird people that I enjoy hanging out with, because this is family, and family's messy, so you're welcome to come and be family with us too, all right? Today is going to be the second and the last day that we are taking a pause from our John series in order to lean into trying to best understand how to approach the Bible, because here's the thing. Here at Lighthouse, we are convinced that our faith can stand up to our toughest questions. And whenever we have a question, our response is always, let's see what Scripture has to say. That's going to get the final word. But we are taking a huge, uh, or making a huge assumption when we simply assume that Scripture is true. And so we don't want to simply assume it, and that's why last week we spent an entire weekend exploring how can we know that this document that we found our worldview on, that we found our understanding of who God is, that we 
try our darndest to submit to and be shaped by, how do we know that this is true? And we spent an entire weekend last week looking at that. If you missed that conversation, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it. It's on our, on, uh, you can get it from our website, you can go to YouTube, you can listen to it as an audio file. If you've got our app on your phone, you can listen to it directly through there. There's a lot of different ways you can listen to it. But here's the thing. We read scripture with the desire to understand it, and then we look around and we realize that other people who claim to read scripture are coming up with very different perspectives of what scripture tells them is okay. Or, and and I, I learned this in college when I went, I went to grad school at Vanguard University. I got my master's in theology because I had a whole bunch of questions and I didn't want to take my parents or my pastor's word for it. So I want, went there not to get all the answers because there's no way I'm ever going to have them all, but rather to get the tools to answer my own question. And one of the first books I was introduced to at that school was this book, The Bible Tells Me So. And that book goes through the ways that the Bible and scriptures specifically have been used to support very diametrically opposed perspectives. For instance, during the Civil War, the Bible was used by both the North to say slavery is wrong and by the South to support the, their desire to continue to have slavery. During the women's suffrage movement and all throughout up until today, the Bible has been used both to elevate and to push women down throughout our history, like even in the last couple of decades, we've watched as scripture has been used both to support and forward LGBTQ things as well as to say, no, this is not God's desire. We've also watched scripture being used in other countries to support genocide. We have watched scripture be twisted over the course of this last year or even just watched scripture be used from both sides politically to support their political perspectives, as well as our views on everything from the COVID virus to the vaccine to face masks to yada, yada, yada. You get it. This book, the Bible, has been used to, to support very different perspectives. And so how are we to understand this when people who read it come up with very different interpretations. And I'm going to suggest to you today that that has far less to do with what is in the Bible and much more to do with how we read and interpret the Bible. But we'll get to that in a second because this is what I've recognized. The Bible in my lifetime, I've been alive for 43 years now, in my lifetime I've watched the Bible go from being perceived culturally as the good book to simply a book and in many circles, particularly in some of the, the colleges, it is now being presented as the bad book, the book that is there to support some of the worst elements of our culture. And it's hard to see that happening. In fact, this is, this is a quote from a, a very reputable source called GQ Magazine. I'm sure that all of you were probably reading this regularly. I wouldn't suggest doing it. But this was from a, an article from a couple of years back called one of the 21 classics that are simply not worth reading, okay? And this was their explanation as to why they included the Bible as one of those 21 classics that you should just not bother to read. They said, the Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who have never actually read it. Those who have read it know that there are some good parts, but overall, it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. It's repetitive, self-contradictory, judgmental, foolish, and at times even ill-intentioned. That's their perspective. 
of Scripture. It's one held by a number of people. And so again, I ask the question, how are we to understand a book that is purported to be God's word, but people who read it come up with very different perspectives? How come this happens? And I would suggest to you it has less to do with what is in here as how we go about reading it, the ways in which we go about reading it. And today what I want to do is I want to simply talk about how we approach God's word and how we apply it to our lives and the process we go in interpreting it. And I say interpreting it because every time you read God's word, you are interpreting it. You are interpreting it through a lens that you may not even realize you're wearing because it's not like glasses. Anybody ever like fallen asleep with your sunglasses on and you wake up and you still got them on but the sun is kind of setting now it's too dark, right? Or, or, or you think about the glasses you put on and the way that they shape the way you view the world. All of us are wearing glasses. They're, they're, they're glasses that we have developed both simply by where we've been raised by the society that we've been raised in, through the lessons that we've picked up along the way from our parents and our teachers and our peers, by the media we watch. All of these things begin to shape our worldview. And so every time we pick up scripture and we begin to read it, it invariably shapes the way we read it. And it, it, it shapes the way we interpret it. Now, perhaps the most helpful book I was ever introduced to in grad school was this book. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I mentioned it at the end of last week. I bought about 20 copies, um, and, and I, I bought them specifically for those who are interested in potentially reading it. But I'm going to quote today several places from it. I would love to show you on the screen, but as my wife now knows, we don't have anything on the screen, so don't look there for it. I'll just go ahead and read it to you. So this is from How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. They explain how we are always interpreting whenever we're reading scripture. This is what they say. Every reader is at the same time an interpreter. That is, most of us assume that as we read, we also understand what we read. We also tend to think that our understanding is the same thing as the Holy Spirit's or the human author's intent. However we invariably bring to the text all that we are with all of our experiences, our culture, our prior understandings of words and ideas, and sometimes what we bring to the text, unintentionally to be sure, leads us astray or else causes us to read all kinds of foreign ideas into the text. We all do it. Even pastors do it. Okay, so I'm not suggesting that you're bad interpreters and I'm a good interpreter. That is the furthest thing from what I'm suggesting. We are all interpreting and from time to time or probably quite often, we are reading into scripture things that is not there. And I think most of us are trying to answer the question, what does this say for my life? And it's a fair question. It's an important question. But typically what we mean by that is we start whenever we read scripture with this question, what is this saying to me? Fair question. It's a question I hope you ask. The problem is, it should not be the first question you ask. Because the thing that we need to remember is that this, while written for everybody on the planet, this is God's word, it transcends time and culture. It speaks to all of us in any 
situation we find ourselves in, this speaks to us, and yet it was not originally written specifically to us. And when we try to pull it across 2,000 or more years of history, we end up ripping it out of its context, and we try to plop it into our own context, and we can very quickly twist it to say something it is not intending to say. Let me quote again from How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. They go on. Because the Bible is God's word, it has eternal relevance. It speaks to all humankind in every age and in every culture. Because it's God's word, we must listen and obey. I totally agree. But because God chose to speak his word through human words in history, every book in the Bible also has historical particularity. Each document is conditioned by the language, the time, the culture in which it was originally written. Therefore, before we ask the question, what does this mean to me here and now, we first need to ask the question, well, what did this mean to them there and then? Then and only then can we hope to correctly begin to interpret and apply God's word. If we don't, start with what did this mean to their, them there and then, we run the risk of ripping verses out of their context and twisting them to support things that are very contrary to the heart of God's word. We run the very real risk of using scripture to support something that God does not support. And that's a really dangerous thing because remember, we might be the only scripture that somebody reads. They may never step foot in this building, but they're interacting with you and your sphere of influence on a regular basis. How you live matters. And if we simply rip verses out of their context, we can actually do damage to the way that people perceive God, to the way that people perceive God's word. So today what I want to do is I want to help us to understand why context is so unbelievably important. But I'm not, when I'm talking context, it gets a little bit, there's a lot here, and I'm going to try to put into one conversation in about 35 minutes, I'm going to try to put what we could probably spend weeks and weeks in in a graduate level course talking about. Again, A lot of what I'm going to share with you is laid out much more clearly and and with more space for it to breathe in this book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. If you don't own it, I encourage you to get it. If you are willing to commit to reading at least the first two chapters, then I will give you a copy of it in the back. If we run out, you can buy them on Amazon or I will buy you a copy. If you prefer to have it in a digital format, you can get it on just about, I mean, this is a book that is used in lots and lots of seminaries to help people understand it. I highly recommend it. This morning, however, I'm going to try to keep it as simple and as straightforward as possible, but this is really important. There's two different types of context that I'm referring to when we say that we need to read any given scripture in its context. The literary context and the historical context. Let's take both of those one at a time. The literary context refers to the fact that words can mean lots of different things, and so the only way to understand what a word or a sentence truly means is to read it within the context of the overall thought. 
which is tremendously important, but it's also something that doesn't happen a lot today because what I have watched happen over the course of my lifetime is we've gone from reading entire chapters of Scripture to devotionally reading the Bible, meaning we will rip a verse or a piece of a verse out of context, slap it on our social media feed, or, you know, in a devotional, we'll read maybe half of a verse, and then the devotion writer will go ahead and say whatever they wanted to say, using that as the, the kind of the beginning kernel of thought, but oftentimes coming to a very different point than what the original author of that scripture was trying to say. And what that does is it causes us to begin to look at Scripture as just a whole bunch of Legos that you can just pick up and appreciate all by itself, forgetting the fact that this is intended to be part of a larger whole. And when we do that, when we devotionalize Scripture, it makes it very, very easy to twist it and to use it to support very different perspectives. The English language, like every language, Words only make sense in their context of the words around it. Let me give you some examples. Think of the word run. There's a lot of ways you can use that word. I have a run in my stocking. I'm not going to show you. I can't get this app to run, or in our context today, we can't get the lyrics to run, right? Or Josh went for a run. Boy, runs a lot. Or how about live? Where do you live? I once saw Michael Jordan play live. Walk it off, you'll live. I say that to my boy all the time. My wife says it to me all the time. Resume, or is it resume? When will classes resume? Have you updated your resume? Same word, very different meanings depending on their context. Or last one, rock. Hey, pick up that rock. Hey, that's a nice rock in your ring. My favorite type of music is rock. Or this is gonna rock, right? These words, same exact Letters mean something very, very different within a different context. And in the same way, scriptures, their meaning can only be discerned when you read it within the context of the larger unit of thought. So rather than reading something devotionally, rather than simply reading a verse and think, you've done your Bible reading, or even if you are going through a devotion, like, My Utmost for His Highest is a fabulous one by a guy named Oswald Chambers. I love it, but the problem is it always starts with a verse at the beginning. And if you just let that be enough, oftentimes you will come to a different conclusion on that verse. So what I like to do when I'm doing, reading through a devotion like My Utmost for His Highest is I like to find the verse, go back to my Bible, and read the entire chapter that that verse is from. Then I get an understanding of the thought that's going on for the author before I then see what Oswald has to say. And by the way, if you start at the beginning of a chapter and the beginning of the chapter begins with, therefore, always a really good idea to ask, what's the therefore? And that might mean you need to back up even more and maybe a couple of paragraphs before to get a running start into that chapter to understand then how you're making sense of that verse. Is this making sense? Okay, that's literary context, and guys, there's so much more to it, but that's the broad brush strokes that we're going to get into today. One last thought on, on literary context. Wasn't planning in it, but this is extra credit, okay? We often talk about wanting to read the Bible literally. We all want to, and in fact, I would suggest you do it but not in the way that we understand that. Because when we talk about reading the, 
words literally, we often tend to think that it means whatever the word says, that's exactly what it means. But then you read stuff like Jesus is being described as having a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And you go, I don't think he actually has a sword in his mouth. It's talking, I mean, this is apocalyptic language. So when we talk about reading the Bible literally, what that really means is that you read every book of the Bible according to its literary genre. You read history as history. You read poetry as poetry. You read apocalyptic literature, like apocalyptic literature, with lots and lots of metaphor and stuff, painting a picture. You read the Gospels as, as differently than you read the letters of the epistles that are, are found later on. In the, and, and you read wisdom literature like the Proverbs differently than a promise, right? Because we use Proverbs all the time. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. If you ate an apple every day, that doesn't mean you'll never have to go see a doctor. It is simply a wise saying, basically suggesting if you eat healthfully, you'll be more healthy. We can't press that to be a promise because then all of a sudden you're... And, and we need to read the Proverbs, with that understanding. Does that make sense? So read the Bible literally, but that means you have to understand the literary genre in order to be able to do that. Now, so that's literary context. Let's talk about historical context. Again, God's word speaks to us in our moment of history. It will speak to, it, until Jesus comes home, it will speak to generations to come, and it has spoke to generations ever since these words were written down. They speak right into our context because these words, the Bible is alive. It has the Holy Spirit that inspired it. It continues to inspire our reading of it. But it was written first and foremost to a different group of people in a different cultural context than we are in. And so when we talk about historical context, this is the who, what, when, where, and why of, of biblical reading. We need to ask the question, who's writing? And who are they writing to? And why are they writing? What were the circumstances that caused them to want to write this? I, I remember teaching over at Vanguard. I was, I was teaching a, a class of people who were going into ministry, but it was how they were writing papers. And I, I found myself constantly underlining every time they would say, the Bible says, and then they would do whatever verse they were going to quote. The Bible says, and I found myself underlining the Bible says every time and saying, who says? Because let me remind you, the Bible doesn't actually say anything. The authors of the Bible say. Or the authors quote Jesus who says. And this is important. Because when you simply say the Bible says, what you're doing is you're ripping it out of its context and just saying, well, this is just a, a, a nice aphorism for us to use. But when you say, Jesus said this to the Pharisees, that's different than Jesus said this to the woman caught in adultery. Who says it and who they're saying it to matters greatly. Otherwise, you could say things like the Bible says and then quote from Job's friends who were trying to fix him. Just because it's written in the Bible doesn't mean it's something you should apply to your life. There's plenty of things that are actually given to try to warn you, don't live this way. And if you just rip that verse out of its context without ever taking into consideration who's saying it and why they're saying it, you can actually twist it and use Scripture to support something that is the contrary to what it's trying to suggest you do. 
Are you still following me here? I know there's a lot. This is like drinking from a theological fire hose. I'm sorry. In just a minute, we're going to transition. We're going to actually put this into practice, and you're going to see that it kind of makes a little bit more sense than it probably does right now. So you need to ask questions like, who's speaking? Who are they speaking to? What are the circumstances going on? You're like, well, Eric, I don't have a biblical degree. I don't have a huge library in my home. I don't have the time to do that. Well, then I would recommend that you invest in a good study Bible. Because in any good study Bible, at the beginning of whatever book you're about to read, it will actually give you all of the context that you're going to need to make a better understanding of what you're reading. It's going to tell you when it was written. It's going to tell you who wrote it. It's going to tell you who they wrote it to. It's going to tell you why they wrote it and the circumstances going on. And this is really important stuff because that will provide at least enough of a context for you to begin to understand what you're reading and why you're reading it. Let me give you an example of why context matters. John wrote the gospel that we have been studying since the beginning of the year. John wrote that gospel when he was toward the end of his life from the city of Ephesus where he was kind of an elder statesman of the church at that point. So he's writing to Christians in and around Ephesus and the surrounding regions, and we know from history that there was a group of people there who still followed John the Baptist. They were disciples of John the Baptist. Now we begin to understand why John chooses to include in his gospel a whole bunch of times where John the Baptist pops up and says, hey, remember, don't look at me, look to him. Don't follow me, follow Jesus. The reason that John chooses to include those moments, he didn't make them up, but he chose to include them because of his intended audience. Does this make sense? So knowing who's writing and who they're writing to actually can help you make more sense of it. Now, what have we got here? Oh, okay. So I need Charlie and the, the um, ushers to pass out the... Uh, I, I have a paper for you in your bulletin, and those of you at home, I'm really sorry, I will email this out later this week, so you will get it as well. There's a baseball diamond, I'm totally stealing this, from a, little, a, a pastor of a little church called Saddleback down the, tree, down the street. This is a baseball diamond that he uses in biblical interpretation. It, to this day, it's the best tool that I have found to make sense of the process of interpreting the Bible. So we're going to go ahead and pass that out. Make sure everybody has a copy. I will also have extra copies in the foyer for those of you who aren't here this week. I will also email it out to those of you who are watching at home. I would love to, Jeannie, but I know that you were listening and you already know. I love you. All right, as it's going out, the baseball diamond, you probably can't see it, but think of a baseball diamond in your mind for those of you at home. You've got four bases. Third base is the question, what does, it, what does the Bible say to me? All right, that's the question we typically like to start with. What is the Bible saying to me? How is this speaking into my context? If you ask that question first, it's like you hit the ball and you run to third base. I don't like baseball very much, but for those of you who watch, what, what, what do you call somebody who runs to third base after they hit the ball? Out. Right? They're out. You're, you're not playing the game correctly. You're out. So we want to run to first base, then to second base, and then we get to third base on the way to home. What is first base? First base, we ask the question, what does the text say? 
This is the whole literary context question of what's it actually saying. That means that we actually have to read that verse or those couple of words within the context of the larger chapter. That will help flesh out the unit of thought so that you have an idea of what the author is writing about. And again, if, it's, if the chapter begins with therefore, back up a little bit more, get a running start into it. Once you've read it within its context, hopefully it'll begin to make a little bit more sense. Now we go to second base. This is the question of, well, what is it saying to its original audience? And this is where you need to flesh out, well, who was writing? Who were they writing to? What were the circumstances going on? This is why you start with the kind of, in your, in your study Bible, that first introduction. Guys, I know you don't like to follow instructions, but this time it might actually help you, okay? Take the extra couple of minutes to go, what was going on in that day and age that would prompt this author, let's say it's Paul, writing to the Philippian church? Well, remember, Paul was in Rome. He was incarcerated awaiting a trial that could very easily end in his execution and he's writing to a group of people who are surrounded by a culture that does not bend a knee to Jesus Christ and are constantly persecuting him and he's saying you know stand firmly and celebrate don't be upset about the uh, about my circumstances because God's actually using it to advance his purposes when you understand the circumstances it actually helps breathe flesh out scripture and make it so much richer so what it would it say to them there and then then we go to third base okay in light of what it said to them now what is it saying to us today what is it saying to me it will have to build off of what it said to them there and then and that's not to say that we don't have a richer understanding some two thousand years later from the original audience we certainly hopefully do so when we read something like Jesus saying to his disciples on the night that he is about to be arrested, hey guys, listen, in this world, you're going to have trouble. just want to warn you, but you can take heart in the fact that I've overcome the world. I know for a fact that they didn't understand fully what he was talking about. They had no idea that the cross was coming within 24 hours. We do. So we have a deeper, richer understanding of what we're reading in that moment. But those words still mean the same thing to them is they mean to us, even with our richer understanding. We can't make them say something other than what they were saying to them. Only after we've grounded Scripture, we've run the bases. What is it saying? Who's it saying? What would it have meant to them? So what does it mean to us? Now we come to home plate. Fourth base, or home plate, is how should I apply this? How do I respond? How do I live in light of what I've just read? And that's going to look different for each of us. Because the, the, the Holy Spirit works inside of us. And you might find that you can read the same passage over and over and over. And each time you read it, something else jumps off the page and impacts you. That's the beauty of God's Word that continues to have the Holy Spirit working and breathing life into it as it continues to be living and active, it continues to be sharper than a two-edged sword that cuts right to the heart of our stuff and exposes things in us so that God can begin to whittle it away so that we might better represent his heart. So the baseball diamond is really important to remind yourself. Those of you in life group, whenever you read a passage, please don't start with, well, what did that just say to you? Start with, all right, what did we, what did we just read? And how would they have understood it back then 
So then you can ask the question, so how should we understand it now? Do you guys want to try this out? Okay, so let's try this out real time to see how this works. There is a verse that I have seen on many of your social media feeds. You might have seen it on mine at some point too. Many of you have cups and bowls with this written on it. It is a verse that we love to own. It is called Jeremiah 29, 11. If you know it, say it with me. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. We know this and we love this. And let's just take it as it sounds right now. What is Jeremiah, who's Jeremiah 29, 11 talking to? Who do you think it was talking to when you, when you quote it all the time? Me, right? It's talking to me, baby. I know the plans I have for you. I love you because I'm, I'm you, right? And, and what does it say? He knows me. He loves me. He wants me to prosper. Excellent. I might actually own a house one day in Southern California. That'd be awesome. He loves me, right? He wants me to prosper. But I would suggest to you, that we should probably run the bases with this wonderful promise of God so that we can ground it in its literary and historical context. So you guys want to have some fun with me and actually run the bases with this? Go with me to the book of Jeremiah chapter 29. It's about a little bit past halfway through your Bible. If you find yourself in Psalms and Proverbs, go right past Isaiah. And if you find yourself in Ezekiel or, or even in the New Testament, go left. Because it's sandwiched in between Isaiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter 29. You can play along at home as well. You have a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, in here you can take one of them underneath the chair and take it home with you. They are not study Bibles, so I would encourage you to invest in one. But if you don't have a Bible at all, that is our gift to you. We've got extra. How are you all doing up there in the top row, uh, top in the nosebleeds? You guys all right? You following me? You haven't fallen asleep just yet? Good. Just my son? Perfect. All right. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the, sur to the surviving elders amongst the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people that Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right. Let's hit pause for a second. There was a lot of information, but this was great because this chapter starts with a whole bunch of context. We already know some things. We know who's writing. We know that Jeremiah is writing. We know that Jeremiah is writing to Jews who have been taken from the promised land and taken into captivity in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the king at that time, and they are exiled from the promised land. That's who's writing, that's who he's writing to, and that's the circumstances surrounding this. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 4. Verses 2 through 3 are, are, are just kind of more filler that we will jump over just for the sake of time. Verse 4. This is what the Lord, so this is now the letter that Jeremiah is writing to these people. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Pause for a second. Now we know that Jeremiah is writing on behalf of God. These, this is God speaking to the people. Let's keep going. Build houses and settle down. 
Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too might have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that, they, that you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now, what are they saying? We don't know. But as we keep reading, I think we're going to be able to discern what it is from the context of what we keep reading. Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and and come to pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where you have been banished, where I, where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I have carried you into exile. Whew, there's a lot there. But I think that this, backing up a little bit, gives us a little bit more contextual understanding. Base number one, what is this actually saying? This is a letter written by Jeremiah to a group of people that are in exile, and it is saying to them, get comfortable, don't worry. God is still with you, even though this isn't going to go nearly as quickly as you think it will. My guess is, from reading this, I'm making an inference here because he never tells us what those false prophets and those diviners are telling them, but my guess is those false prophets are saying, God is going to come soon, and he's going to get us out of here soon, and and Babylon is going to fall, and Israel will rise, just like God said he would. And what God is saying is, don't listen to them. They're not speaking for me. They're saying those things because you want them to say those things. They're saying what your itching ears want to hear. But I have not told them to say that. Build houses. Marry. Have families. Pray for the peace and the prosperity of this city into which you've been carried into exile. Because you're going to be there for a while. But don't worry. I haven't forgotten about you. I won't leave you there forever. And there will come a day. 70 years from now, when I will redeem you out of that place. That's what I hear it saying as I read that. Now let's ask, let's go to to base number two. What would they have heard that saying to them? Specifically, how might Jeremiah 29, 11 sound to a group of people who have been yearning for God to show up, but he doesn't seem to be showing up? And and Nebuchadnezzar seems to continue to be really comfortable, and, and Babylon seems to continue to be winning, and God seems to continue to be silent. And they have all of these prophets saying, he's going to come, he's going to rescue you really soon. Just give it a day or two, it's going to happen. And it's not happening. What would this have said to that group of people? 
my God has not forgotten me. He still has a plan for us, a plan to prosper us, not to forget about us. He has, we can have hope of a future back where we belong, despite the fact that we are currently not there and that the world is not what we thought it should be. That's what I hear it saying to them. You might hear something a little bit different, and that's okay. But I'm trying my best to try to discern what it might have sounded like to one of these Jews that are in exile in a land that is not their home. One other thing I want to point out, and this is really important when it comes to interpreting Scripture. When I read Jeremiah 29, 11, and it says, I know the plans I have for you, I hear me individually. Or if it's talking to them, I think it's saying them individually. But that's a very 21st century American way of reading scripture. We are the most individualistic culture in history. We are a culture that now you can have an entire web page devoted to telling people where you've been, what you're reading, what you're thinking at a moment's notice, and they can all give you thumbs up for it. Right? We love to be individualistic, so every time we read you, we read me. But to a Middle Eastern ear, they would never read me. They would always read it in the Midwestern y'all because they think in terms of community. So whenever you are reading scripture, I want to challenge you to read y'all when you read you because that's pretty much what it's saying. I know the plans I have for y'all. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give y'all hope and a future. Gosh, that went way too easily. That's, that's just scary. Don't you dare do country western on, the, on, on our response time. Don't you dare. Okay. I know. The ADHD is kicking in. So when we read scripture, we need to resist the desire to read it individualistically because here, let, here's a good reminder for us. He's writing this to a group of people who are exiled saying, I know the plans I have for you. But almost every single one of them that were, would read that it, when he initially wrote it would be dead by the time that God finally redeemed the people and brought them back to Israel. And yet it was still for them because it's part, they are part of the body of Christ or they are part of the family of God. And this is incredibly important. Because as we now bring it into the 21st century, we bring it into our context and we ask the question, what does this say to me or what does this say to us in light of what it said to them there and then, it actually does speak to us. Because although we may not be 1st century or 4th or century BC Jews living in exile in Babylon, we, as sons and daughters of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are part of the body of Christ. And we, too, find ourselves living in an environment that can be very easy to think of as our home because we were raised here. We think like Americans. We are told that our greatest goal is the American dream to have a house and a spouse and 2.3 kids. I'm going to say Sadie's our point three, right? But that's not 
God's dream, that's the American dream, and we need to resist the temptation to think of ourselves primarily as American citizens, although we are unbelievably grateful for the country that we live in. And we are incredibly grateful for the men and women who have fought and bled and in some instances died for those freedoms that we get to have. We need to remember that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God who happen to live in the nation of America. And it seems at times as we look around like evil is winning and that God is silent. It seems as we look around that the values of the, our king are, are being pushed down while the things that are so contrary to his heart are being elevated and celebrated and what we celebrate becomes the norm. So suddenly we start seeing things that must hurt our father's heart being celebrated and we just go, dang it, how long, oh Lord, must we endure this? When are you going to show up and when are you going to stop this garbage? And this reminder is for us as it is for them. As much for us as it is for them. Settle down. Build houses. Have families. Raise your children. Pray for the peace and the prosperity of the land, the city into which I've carried you. Don't listen to those people who say it's coming tomorrow. We know the date it's going to happen and all that. Even the angels don't know the date. But it is coming. And it seems to me like it's quickening. But when it is time, know this as you wait upon the Lord. I have not forgotten about you. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper the people of God, not just you individually. This isn't about health, wealth, and prosperity, guys. This is about God's plan being worked out in and through us. This is about the kingdom of God breaking into our reality and setting things right. And it might not actually happen in our lifetime. Some of you who are listening to me today might actually go and be with Jesus before Jesus comes back. And yet, we can take solace in the fact that God has not forgotten about us and he is continue, continuing to work maybe behind the scenes and maybe very much in front of the scenes through us to redeem a world that he created and that he died for. That's what I hear it saying to us in light of what it said to them. And this brings us now to fourth base. How now shall I live in light of this? And this is where we have to trust the Holy Spirit to speak to each of us. And my guess is you could read this a dozen times and have a dozen different things stand out to you. And I am not going to stand up here and say, this is what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. That would be ridiculous. Because I don't know what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. And I don't know how the Holy Spirit would challenge or convict you to respond. All I can speak to is how this convicts me. And I will say that as I read this, the verse, I, I, I find a lot of hope in Jeremiah 29, 11. I really do. But the verse that really stands out most powerfully to me today is actually verse 7. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because as it prospers, you too will prosper. Why does that stand out to me? Because I live in a city that doesn't always 
very seldom bends a knee to Jesus Christ. I live in a city full of men and women who were created in his image that have no relationship with him whatsoever. I live in a city where some of my kids' closest friends, their, their parents' marriages are disintegrating. And I'm watching people that I love being consumed by fear about what they see going on as they consume the news or as they doom scroll through their social media feeds. I am watching the people that I love in this city that I have been carried into exile. This is not my home. Though I have lived here my entire life, this is not my home. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God who happens to live in the city of Costa Mesa. And because I am here, God calls me to love it, to pray for it, to seek the peace and the prosperity of it. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that I pray for those who have been entrusted with responsibility in this city, even if I didn't vote for them. Even if they don't call Jesus Christ their Lord and their Savior, I still pray for them. It means that I continue to use the platforms that God has given me, the voice he's given me, that my, my, my identity, not, it's not my identity, my identity is a child of God, but my role as the father to my sons and an influence perhaps over some of his friends as they interact with their friends, as a pastor to a, a church, that all of you have your own spheres of influence and I get to remind you guys, you get to be a part of this. You don't have to have a, a master's degree in theology in order to be a minister of God. You are a minister of God if you've said yes to Jesus Christ and you have been given a sphere of influence. How are you using that to reflect the heart of God? I, I, I even have a heart. God has burdened my heart to unite pastors, to get us together, to have lunch together, to, to pray for one another and support one another any way that we can to share best ideas and say hey you guys are running it loving on the on the schools we want to join you in that hey bill god has given you a heart to feed people who have less than we do we want to invite people into that and there are lots of ways that you can get involved in this city we've got i'm actually really excited to say tim where are you at tim is in the very back you can't see him at home but tim will you stand up for a moment this is Tim O'Mara. He is, he is a longtime part of our church. He is a good friend. He is a good man. And he is stepping into the role in our church of the outreach director for our church. His job is to know what's going on in the city to help give you an opportunity to join with the church at large in caring for the needs that are around us. Kind of as a taste tester to you being a minister in your sphere of influence. Sometimes it's easier to do it with other people who have been doing it a little bit longer. Tim's job will, he, he's kind of absorbing this from what Don and Jill were doing because Don and Jill are down in Costa Rica now. They're invested in trying to really break ground down there. So Tim is picking up that mantle of saying, how can I help y'all get involved and so if you have questions about how you can get th this is his first week so give him a little bit of time to acclimate but you can also you can also challenge him because you know you can ask him questions and he'll figure it out he's awesome so i'm really glad that god has identified him in our church as the person to step into this because i know that he will do a great job but all of us are ministers all of us have a sphere of influence all of us get to join with the larger church because there's only one church jesus is the head of all it and all of us are a part of it
if we call Jesus our Lord and Savior. This is how Jeremiah 29 speaks to me. This is how God and the Holy Spirit has been speaking to me through this passage. Yes, he hasn't forgotten about us. And yes, I have a part to play here and now as I wait for God to redeem the brokenness I see all around me. And I don't know when it's going to end once and for all, but until Jesus returns, we all have a part to play in this. And I, for one, don't want to just fall asleep at the wheel or just get comfortable or just settle for the American dream. That is settling for far too small. That is what it looks like to run the bases with a scripture. In your bulletins, I've given you a few other verses that we tend to take out of context. For those of you at home, since I don't have it to be able to show you on the screen here, if you have the church app, you can get it from there. But let me just tell you the three verses, and you can come back and, and write these down. Philippians 4.13, Luke 11.9, and 1 Corinthians 10.13. If, if that was too quick, just re rewind 10 seconds and listen to it again. I want you to run the bases with one of those this week. These are verses that you know by heart. I want you to run the bases and see if it perhaps changes the way you understand that particular verse in light of its context, both literary and historic. Because at the end of the day, guys, we as Christ followers want to submit to Scripture rather than demanding that Scripture submit to our whims. We want Scripture, God's Word to us, written by 40 different human authors but inspired by Him. We want to use this as it was intended, as a scalpel that shapes our hearts so that we will be better representatives of Him in the world because we might be the only Scripture that people out there read. We want to reflect it accurately. This is not... Verses are not like branches of a tree that we can hack out of their context and twist into a cudgel that we can then use to beat people into submission and into agreeing with us. That is not what this is intended to be. And if that is how you've been using it, may I humbly request you stop. Please. Because it makes my and so many other people's jobs harder when we are trying to reflect the heart of God and you are just being a jerk in Jesus name with that I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward again I will say I bought 20 copies of these I think there might be about 12 or 15 left at this point if you promise me that you will read at very least two the first two chapters you may take one without paying for it at all if I don't have enough I probably won't we can get more. If, I, I would ask just one per family too, just to make sure that it goes farther than it otherwise would. And if you prefer to read this digitally, then don't take a copy of it. Just go ahead and download it. If you need us to reimburse you for it, we are happy to do so. But this, is, this and when I say this, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart is a very helpful resource, but it is no replacement for this. This is the word of God. This 
is the word of God that points to the true word of God, that took on flesh and entered into our reality. This is like God's compass to help point us back to his heart. This is like God's scalpel that he uses to shape our hearts so that we could better reflect his heart in this world. It is worth spending time on, and it is worth understanding how to use so that you won't misrepresent or abuse it. And that's why we took a little break from John so that we could understand what we're dealing with so that when we dive back into John next week and into one of my very favorite stories, we will have a better understanding of what we're doing. All right? I love you guys. Let's pray, and then we're going to respond. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for scripture. Thank you for the ways, Holy Spirit, that you continue to breathe new life into it and continue to speak to us across the millennium. We invite you, God, to challenge the perspectives that we have picked up along the way, to challenge our worldview if it is contrary to your heart. We want to be reflections of your heart, not reflections of the society that we've been raised in or reflections of the people that had the greatest voice when, during our formational years. We want to let all of that fall aside. So that, Father God, you are the one who is continuing to shape our hearts to be reflections of your heart into this world that so desperately needs to know you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together. Trust in you with endless love. All my fear is swept away, and everything, everything I will trust in.
lyrics to know how to worship God, right? Even without knowing what you're saying. I mean, I, I am just so grateful that God uses imperfect people like us with imperfect technology to be, a, to be able not only to worship Him, but to represent Him. And guys, I want to remind you that as you step out these doors, you're not leaving church. The church is leaving the building, and you are going into your primary mission field. The sphere of influence that God has uniquely placed you in. And I just want to pray this prayer over you from the passage that we got to, to run the bases with today. May you seek the peace and the prosperity of the city into which you have been carried. May you pray to the Lord for it because as it prospers, you too will prosper. And I know that you may be thinking, how much longer, O oh Lord? 
must we deal with the brokenness. But just know this. I know the plans that I have for y'all. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Father God, that is our desire. That we would be the kind of people who would not be so distracted by this world that we would seek you with all of our hearts. Would you help us to better understand how to study your word so that we can better be shaped by it to be a reflection of your heart? We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. If you have prayer requests, you can drop them in the white boxes, or if you're at home, email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. If you want to give, you can give on the website or in the back. Have a wonderful week. We love you. Bye.